Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest Ion Travel podcast. This week, coming from Paris. As Americans crowd into the city of light, thanks to the power of the U.S. dollar against the euro. I'm joined by Michel Moreau, who runs the Hyatt Hotels in France, with his frontline report on the surge in travel and what it means, especially in the long run, for U.S. travelers. Then I'll speak with my old friend and American expat, Alexander Lebrano. He's my go-to guy when it comes to restaurants. He's the author of books like My Place at the Table and Hungry for France. He's got a great update on the culinary scene in Paris and why he's actually in a good mood about all the new restaurants. And finally, a conversation with legendary media executive Josh Sapan on his own personal journey and the publication of his new book, The Third Act, Reinventing Your Next Chapter. He's talked with everyone from Oscar-winning actors to investment bankers, from politicians, lifeguards, yes, even radio broadcasters, about their decisions to follow their passions and radically change their life, lifestyles, and occupations, with some very interesting surprises. First up, Michelle Moreau. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. 
Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. So good to see you, Peter. I mean, you and I have known each other in so many different incarnations when you were the general manager in, uh, in Hamburg. Uh, and then Washington D.C. Washington, the at Twenty Fourth and M, um, and, and then wait, West wait, Hollywood, West Hollywood, the Andas, right? Correct. And then uh, and then back to Paris. Uh, as someone who sees all of these trends, where do you see the American market? For someone listening to the show who lives in the United States, is this a good time to come to France? Well, it's an amazing time because not only we have experienced the revenge travel. But now you have the exchange rate going with it. So to visit France and visit Europe now is the best time ever. And uh, we have seen it actually since uh, uh, late spring. All our, our visitors from the U.S. are back in, in, in big numbers. You know, if you talk to the U.S. airline CEOs, they will tell you that the, that the resurgence in their business is not being driven by business travel. It's leisure travel. And, and, and the thing that's, that's particularly amazing to me is that at this time of the year, the fourth quarter, which is generally and historically a low period of travel, uh, those numbers haven't dropped off that much. It keeps going. What we have learned from the COVID or the after COVID is that the revenge travel starts with leisure business, right? All the leisure travelers. And like you say, uh, it's, it's going on right now. Uh, all the way to the end of the year, we can see the numbers. Uh, and we'll see the same trend in business too, actually. Well, in business travel, what we're seeing is that about 60% of the original business travel will probably be back by May or June of next year. Uh, what won't be coming back is intra-business travel, meaning if I'm the, uh, the parts division of IBM and I want to meet the sales guys, it's a Zoom call now. But if I want to go to a, a convention of, of computer manufacturers, everybody's still going to go. Um, and that's really the difference. Is the difference. And also, uh, there's a difference in business travel between the luxury industry and, you know, other hotel business. I think in the luxury uh, hotel segment, uh, the business is back quite strongly because you want to see your customer, you want to see your partner, you want to do business face-to-face again. Well, it's also changed the definition of leisure traveler because it could be leisure, right? A combination of business and leisure where someone's got to be on a three-day trip and now his or her significant other is saying, I'm going. And they can extend the trip then. That's a big trend too. They're traveling together now. And uh, we see that at the park at, for example. Uh, people are there for leisure, for business, a bit of both. But it also has to change how you address your audience now. It's, it's, you, you can't just focus on one market, can you? Correct. The expectation. You know, in the old days, we used to call that purpose of visit. And we knew people who were there on business, who were there on leisure. Uh, as you say, if they're on leisure, you have to meet kind of both purpose of visit together in the way you, you serve the customer. And does it change what the offering is at the hotel? Have you changed anything? Well, what's changed a lot, uh, I, I would say some fundamentals haven't changed. Right, But uh, what's changed very much, and it's, it's a trend that started before COVID, is the personalization of of the service to the, each customer. And for that, we have the support of our digital, you know, uh, digital platform. We know our customer, we know what they want. We are very specific about how we welcome each customer. And that's really what is very strong after this uh, uh, COVID crisis. Well, I'll tell you the one thing I've noticed, not just at the Hyatt hotels, but at all hotels, and it could not have come at a better time. Never, I mean, it was coincidental that it was, it was, the catalytic moment was the pandemic. But in the old days, and the old days was, what, three and a half years ago, uh, if I checked into a hotel, I'd have to wade through all the desk cards and the tent cards and the paper stuff and the promotional things. And I used to just open the desk drawer, take my, hand, my arm, and just sweep it into the, I wouldn't even look at it, right? I just I wanted a clean desk, and I, I didn't want to be sold anything, right? Well, then when the pandemic hit, you removed all that stuff anyway. And the good news is, please tell me it's not coming back. It's not going back. But let me ask about the, the elephant in the room, not just about the Hyatt, but about the hotel business in general. Uh, staff shortages. We're seeing this in America. 
where we're still seeing hotels in New York that are closed, that have not reopened. We're seeing other hotels that are operating maybe at 60% occupancy, not because they can't sell the other rooms. They just don't have the staff to support them. So they're officially at 100%, but they're really at 60%. And then, you know, I remember checking into a hotel, and, and in the interest of full disclosure, it was a higher regency, actually, in Chicago. Um, I was there to give a speech at a convention, and I was only going to be there for one night. And I said, hey, listen, can you press my jacket? No, we don't do that anymore. Uh, is there a restaurant in the hotel? No. Uh, how about room service? No. Uh, okay, how about housekeeping? Once every four days. I'm only there for a night. So I saw it there, right? And that's a convention hotel. But you have the same challenges in your entire system. Somehow you have the same challenges around the world. They could be different country by country, area by area. But in a way, the, the good news for us was that our strategy was in place well before covid because we, we knew that the world was, was changing. The tension you had in recruitment existed long before COVID started. Of course, COVID accelerated everything. So we have to be in a different mood to recruit. We have to be very innovative, very experimental in the way we do things. We have to be far more inclusive and diverse in the way we recruit. And we did that before COVID. So as we came out of COVID, we re-engaged our teams, our human resources teams, or talent acquisition teams to go down that road. And I, I must say that somehow by this fall, we are finding a, a pretty good balance. We were under great pressure, of course, in the, in the spring when the pent-up demand was back with us. Right. And we were short of you know, resources everywhere. We were so lucky to be able to count on our staff being very engaged, to work very hard, to work uh, extra days here and there, to make it happen this summer in France. I must say that we were able to operate fully all the hotels and all the restaurants. A lot of tension, a lot of pressure. But by this fall, I think our recruitment efforts are getting there, and I think there's a new world in front of us. This industry is amazing. Well, let me join. ask you, when you talk about recruitment, and this is particular to Europe, but not really that much in the United States, and I think you'd agree with me. If I go to a restaurant here in Paris, or, or Rome, or, or, or Spain, right? I'm just giving three examples. That waiter or waitress who is serving me at that table, that's not their job, that's their profession, right? It's something that maybe their father or their mother did. It's something that they actually look forward to doing. They love their job, right? Love pride. Yeah. yeah. In America, you go to a restaurant, the waitress is an out-of-work actress waiting for the next movie call. They're, they're not looking at it that's as a in profession. L.A. <laughs> well, you knew that because you were in L.A. Yeah. But, I mean, right? You experienced that. And, and so there's no continuity there. And there's no handing it down from generation to generation because there's no love of the job. And, and the argument was made in the pandemic that the, that the hospitality industry didn't do a good enough job in really defining it as a profession as opposed to a job. Yeah, but the trend is changing in Europe too because you, to, to fulfill all the jobs you have, you have to have some of the professionals who love this job, who are passionate about the job, and some of, these, of the people who will do the job as a, as a transition, as while they're students, while they're between two jobs. And you have to create different type of jobs, which we have done now after COVID. We have to restructure hotels and work differently. I can give you an example. Yeah. In, in housekeeping, for example, uh, the housekeepers are usually used to clear the room from dirty linen, dirty bins, clean the room, refresh it with clean linen, clean products. Uh, it's a very tough job in, in the hotel industry. And, with the and by the way, I've, I've done that job with housekeepers. I can't agree with you more. I mean, they have 14 rooms to do in a, in a shift. I mean, I learned how to make a bed from them because they, they know how to do it. But more than that, they have to deal with every room in a state of disarray. Very tough. When I mean, you enter some of the rooms, you I mean, say, oh, oh, my God. Yeah. 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 And they got to do it within that shift. Absolutely. And what, what we have changed, for example, with the COVID, we changed the protocol where the people who clear the dirty linen and, and bins from the room are not the people who are setting up the room for, you know, uh, for hygiene protocol. And basically now after COVID, we found that we could create some student job. We call them flexi job. Student or other people who come just a few hours in the morning and all they do is clear rooms. And they do it with great energy. They have a big apron with the Hyatt logo in the front. <laughs> they work in teams of two. They love it because they know what they're doing. They're clearing the rooms ready for the, the housekeepers. As the housekeepers get in the room, it's much easier. A hard part of the job is already done. And with that, we find new staff. 
new new type of jobs and it helps you know to recruit uh, for example in that in housekeeping my thanks to michelle now i can't come to paris without checking in with alexander lebrano he's introduced me to some of the most incredible food experiences in my life and he never fails to stay on top of the true food capitals of the world he's the author of my place at the table and hungry for paris and he always has a few new and amazing discoveries. Alexander Lebrano, Alex, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be a pleasure to be back, Peter. Welcome to Paris. And of course, he's he's not in Paris today. He's in the south of France, working on his next book, uh, which I'll uh, I'll get into a little bit a little bit later. But let's let's back up because it's been a remarkable period of time since the last time you and I did the show here in Paris with. Hordes of Americans uh, invading, um, coming back to an already popular destination, but coming back in bigger numbers for a number of reasons. One, because they could, right? They no longer were, were being quarantined out. Uh, number two, because they were had been holed up for so long, it was, for lack of a better word, revenge travel. Number three, they weren't price sensitive. They were not worried about traveling at any cost. Emphasis on the words, at any cost. And they were paying for it, but they could not be denied. They came to Paris. But I think what's changed, and I'd love you to weigh in on this, is what their goal were, what their goals are. Because in the past, people would come to visit a location, Paris or otherwise, and they'd want to immerse themselves in the culture, hopefully, and the food and, and the history. Um, but they were visiting, and then they went home. Now I'm seeing this on a global scale not just Americans, but everybody, is not just visiting, they have their, 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 their test driving the destination. They're essentially saying, could I live here? Could I move here? Will I move here? That's what the pandemic did. It allowed people to look at other options about lifestyle, place of living, standard of living, cost of living, not to mention their jobs themselves. I'm sure you saw a lot of that as well, right? We're, we're seeing a huge amount of that, actually, Peter. And I think that this is driven by, from my point of view, this is driven by a couple of different things. Um, for the time being, it's a brilliant time to travel because the exchange rate uh, between the euro and the dollar has been almost nearly par for the first time in 25 years, which means that Europe is hugely affordable. Uh, the last time I was in the U.S., America seemed shockingly expensive. For a long time, it was the other way around. France is actually a very good value destination. For travelers right now, you get a lot of value for your money, whether you're traveling at you know at, at every level of travel, from budget to luxury. So I think there's that. I think, as you mentioned, I think there's what I call carpe diem travel, which is, you know, we were all traumatized by and humbled by being reminded that nature will always hold the upper hand. So it is seize the day, if not now when, um, you know, what the hell, I'm going to get on a plane and do what I want to do. Um, uh, you know, I've always wanted to try this. I've always dreamed about doing it. And that's, this leads into what you just mentioned, which is what I also described as a very avid desire to get behind the velvet ropes. Um, I just led a, a tour of, um, people in Paris with uh, Nancy Silverton, the, the chef in Los Angeles, and Ruth Reichel, the former editor of Gourmet. Um, and when I designed the tour, I knew I had this very much in mind. We did things that I don't think most people would have really been as keen to do as recently as five years ago. For example, we took, uh, we did a croissant making course at La Cuisine, which is run by a lovely American lady from Chicago, uh, right down on the banks of the Seine. People are fascinated by what it actually goes into all the work of making that emblematic French pastry. Um, the uh, but, 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 was in English. But Alex, here's, here's, the, here's a piece of trivia. The French didn't invent the croissant. I know, I know Marie Antoinette brought it with her from Austria. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Don't rub that in, though, because I don't want to hear that here. <laughs> well, <laughs> they well, kind, of, kind of made it their own. Well, actually, but I think you're right. And for those but actually, <laughs> see, that's, the, that's one story that it came from Austria. The other story is it came from Turkey. Um, and the Turkish bakers did it with the crescent on the Turkish flag to celebrate their military victories. 
I think that I think that actually is the providence of it, and I think that after the Turks were uh, pushed or you know defeated at the gates of Vienna, um, I don't know where, how the the vanquished army's pastry traditions were adopted by the Viennese, but somehow <laughs> that occurred. And so when Marie Antoinette made her way to Paris, she brought um, this style of pastry making, which in French is known as Viennoiserie, a little things from Vienna with her. Um, I think that actually this lamb and this, uh, it's called laminating, you roll dough over and over and over and over again. So it, it creates very thin, crispy layers. That is a typically Arabic um, right. uh, technique. But, and, but, I, but um, I will, I'll tell you, know, you one what, thing. What, I'll tell you one thing, Alex, and that is, whether the Turks invented it or not, whether the Viennese adapted it or not, the French perfected it because they added another ingredient in in mass quantities. It's called butter. <laughs> are you talking about butter? Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's you know wouldn't be wouldn't be French without a lot of butter. Um, but we and we learned how much butter that is when we make rolling these croissants. So you know this. This again is what you said is so interesting and so true. I think that I think people don't want their noses pressed up against the window when they're traveling anymore. They want to walk inside, you know, try try life on as you as you very aptly described it. Um, whether it's learning how to make a local speciality like a croissant or going up the beaten path, um, we went up and toured a part of Paris that I doubt that anybody gets to, but it's one of my favorite parts of the city. It's called Barbez, or La Goutte d'Or, the, uh, the golden drop, because it was once a place where wine was um, sold, maybe sold back when that part of the city was still rural. Um, it's now one of the most immigrant heavy parts of Paris. Uh, it has a huge African population. So we did a uh, walking tour with a uh, wonderful outfit called Little Africa, um, and it was a, a visit to discover African Paris, the food, the boutiques, the markets, um, and ending up with an African lunch and at an African cultural center. People are absolutely astonished. You know, as they're used to going to fancy chocolate shops in Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Um, this is, was a, this was off the beaten track Paris. And I think there's an enormous desire for that to, to, uh, really go in deep. And I think this, this, I, and I embrace it. And, uh, the Parisians are impressed by it and they're happy with it too. I mean, as a neighbor of mine said, elderly cabaret dancers said, when I ran into her in the stalls and the stairway the other day, she said, Oh, thank God the tourists are back. Paris wouldn't be Paris without them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, I think there's, and it's a very sincere, there's a little tongue in cheek there, but actually quite you know, quite the opposite of certain long-held um, m- m- misbeliefs. Um, Christians actually like tourists and, um, you know, are, and are, have a great affection for Americans. So um, the, the the crowds coming from North America this summer have been very deeply appreciated for a variety of reasons. Well, listen, you came here as a tourist back in 1986 and then you became it became your home. You've been here, what, 26 years? I've actually been here for more than 30 years. Oh, my God. Okay, now you know why I failed math in high school. But the bottom line is, <laughs> it, it's you, what you say is right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a famous Audrey Hepburn line that Paris is always a good idea. And if you want to be a tourist, that's okay, too. I mean, right? I've been coming since I was 12. Thank you, Mom and Dad. I mean, it's, it's, it's a place you always want to come back to. And I want to talk to you about the globalization of food. Seriously, the best Chinese food I've ever had was in, was in Amman, Jordan. The best Italian food was in Lucerne. The best Indian food was in London. Does that surprise you? I don't think it's surprising anymore, Peter. I think that, um, you know, I would hit the ball back over the net by saying the best Moroccan food I've ever had was in Paris at a restaurant called La Tagine. Um, that's kind of an insider that's a place that a lot of Parisian chefs like to have dinner on their nights off because the food is absolutely delicious. They make couscous, they make uh, uh, tagine, which is meat braised and poultry braised inside of these conical-shaped uh, ovens. Um, the food's magnificent, and I think that you know, food is um, food. Curiosity is, you know, innate to humanity. I think we're always looking over each other's fences, looking, you know, curious about what the neighbors are eating next door. Now, though, but between 
um, travel and social media, um, the world has shrunken to such a degree that everybody knows what everybody else is eating. Um, you know, populations do move and mix. And I think that the, um, I think that there's a democracy of food, which means that, for example, the last time I was in the U.S., um, I was fascinated to see that in supermarkets in the deep south, kimchi, you know, the fermented Korean cabbage uh, condiment, is available in supermarkets in small towns in, in the south, even though it's made in Cleveland, Ohio. Somehow or another, <laughs> there's this main, you know, mainstreaming of, of things that were once thought to be exotic. And, and I find it really hopeful and really happy because I think that we're more receptive I think our palates are broader and more receptive than it may probably have ever been in human history. And um, we're seeing this in lots of different ways in Paris, too. I mean, Paris is, I think, the international odds of the, and it's the emerald city for chefs. It's where chefs really want to come and train, and it's where they really, really want to cut their chops um, after they've trained. So, uh, you know, some of the, one of the best new restaurants in Paris this fall is called Omar Daib. Daib, uh, Mr. Daib's parents were are from Egypt. He was born in France, but his family's Egyptian. You, he teases a little bit his Egyptian origins um, with lentils and a couple of other Egyptian products, but he cooks spectacularly elegant uh, contemporary French cooking at a beautiful little restaurant in the heart of Paris. Again, his name is Omar. Omar Daib, which is D H I A B, um, and then you know we're we're seeing we're seeing all kinds of uh, of other really talented young people from all over the world uh, hanging out their shingles here. Um, you know, of course there are, there are also some other uh, there's also some other fun good news. I think a restaurant that you've probably been to and that I've loved for years named Prunier. Uh, just reopened with Yannick Ali, uh, Ali No, the famous three-star chef doing the menu. It's a gorgeous Art Deco restaurant near the Arc de, Arc de, Arc de Triomphe. Um, and it's mostly fish, shell food, and shellfish and caviar. That's a great place to go for a special meal. And the other, the other tip I've been offering people, Peter, is even if the dollars you're getting a lot of bang for the buck in Paris and in France right now, the best bets always are the Michelin one star restaurants. Just you know, it's how do we know what the difference is between a two star and a three star? Is it really that worth that much more money? The one star means that the somebody exceptionally talented and very ambitious has been picked out of the herd. So if you want to eat well in France in 2022, stick with the Michelin one star. That's an assurance of really, really solid quality and solid value. And, and this year was an exceptionally good crop of, of new Michelin star restaurants in France. Um, and there's some really good ones. Also, everybody wants to know what the best new bistro in Paris is. Um, right now, that would be called Parcel, uh, which is like parcel, but... Um, P-A-R-C-E-L-L-E-S, Parcel. Um, and that's a really charming little restaurant in the in the Marais with a fantastic wine list that's um, run by a very talented young woman that she's put together a very, really exceptionally friendly and welcoming, warm young team there. It's a terrific little bistro. Um, so, yeah, um, there's some awful good eating to be had in Paris <laughs> and... and uh, you know, beyond. Well, listen, I, I tip my hat to you because you turned me on to one of my all-time favorite restaurants, and I go back to it every time I'm in Paris. It's literally, I think, maybe eight tables in the whole restaurant, and you, you have to, like, really beg to get in. It's not one of those attitude restaurants where you're going to overpay for anything or, the or you know, they, they look down upon you. It's just a neighborhood restaurant called Lahid. And, he, and where the chef is Japanese, and he is the star, and he, that's exactly, I mean... You know, you as, a, as our all-time shrewdest traveler, um, you know exactly what I just told everyone else, which is go to the Michelin One Stars. Pick out the Michelin One Star in the neighborhood place. Find the place that you love and make it your own. We've been talking about restaurants. We've been talking about food. But, of course, if you're in France, that's only half the equation. Now we got to talk about wine. And uh, you've been all over, haven't you? I've been traveling a lot recently. Um, I've been enjoying being able to move again as much as everybody else has. 
theater. And what I'm also what I'm also thinking about is with the holidays coming up, I've been in some wine regions recently where I've had some spectacular meals and also found some wines that I fell madly in love with. So let me just make a couple of suggestions. When I was in the Champagne region last week, I went to a small Champagne house. They only make about 10,000 bottles of Champagne a year. It's called Pio Seviano. I'll sell that too. Um, they do export to the U.S. It's P-I-O-T uh, hyphen S-E-V-I-L-L-A-N-O. And um, there's the champagnes are made by an incredibly talented team of young women. The grapes are grown organically, and these are these are champagnes of exceptional character. So, with Thanksgiving and the end of year holidays coming up, a couple of bottles of Pio Sevillano should definitely be you know packed away. I was also in the Loire Valley at a that's a beautiful new hotel that's open there called the Fleur de Loire. And the chef there has uh, two Michelin stars. His name is Christophe Hay. He worked in Orlando at Paul Bocuse's uh, restaurant at Disney World for six years. Um, and this is the climate in Florida, so he told me. Um, he's happy to be back in a place where they make great wine, though. So the Water Valley is a t- terrific place to uh, go to when you're looking for wine to drink for Turkey, for example. Um, Saumur, um, Chinon, and Cheverny, three of the major wines that are made in the Loire, uh, are really great teamed up with Turkey. I mean, there were, you know, these red wines that have, um, tannins that will stand up to the fat in Turkey without overwhelming the nice taste. So Cheverny, Saumur, and, um, Menetou, Menetou Salon were our ideas there. You know, um, you know, Alex, you mentioned the you, you mentioned the small champagne houses. I want to go back to that because what I love about going to the small family-run champagne houses is not just to, to look at their champagne or their rosé, but to look at the uh, that's something that doesn't really get to a lot of retail outlets. It's uh, and they bottle it and they bottle it for themselves. And if you ask them, they might have might even give you one. It's the the secondary process in the fermentation where. It tastes just like grape juice, but it's got a high alcoholic content. And it's if you're not careful, you will be smashed in an hour thinking that you're just drinking sweet grape juice. And it's uh, well, that's that, you know, that's why that's why one learns to just sip and meditate on the wine. It's you're absolutely right. Um, you know, these these beautifully crafted they call them growers champagnes. Um, they're the ones I call the other ones, that's better known brands, many of which are fantastic wines. Um, uh, but I call them duty free champagnes. They're the ones that we all know from duty free shops and, and wedding receptions. Um, the grower champagnes are the small bottles. So if you, if you've got a great wine shop, um, or wine merchant in your town, um, you know, I go in and say, what, do you have any grower champagnes? Do you have any smaller ones that have real, character on uh, and really show the personality of the winemaker because you know they blend them differently and the three main grapes of champagne can be can be dosed in different amounts and they you create a very different type of a wine so um yeah i think that champagne i mean champagne is a is a in our collective mindset is a good time wine it's also however incredibly sophisticated wine and it goes really well with food um, you know, it's a lot of fun if you talk to somebody who actually knows something about exactly. it. Exactly. And I always say, you know, when I go into liquor store, I'm not embarrassed to ask questions because I, you know, I'll be learning about wine until my last sip. Um, the more questions you ask, the, the, you know, the more likelihood is you're going to come away with something that suits your budget and the meal that you're planning to serve. My thanks to Alexander. And now, batting third, perhaps appropriately, is the author of a new book just out this week called The Third Act, Reinventing Your Next Chapter. Josh Sapan is the legendary CEO of AMC, one of the most successful entertainment companies in the world. You know them from such shows as Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and many others. But what distinguishes Josh is not only his longevity in the entertainment business, that alone is legendary, but his ability to spot trends, 
switch gears, and adapt. And this book is all about adapting, something that rings true to so many of us, including me. Josh has a few things to say about our third act and what so many people have been able to do to suddenly reinvent themselves. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Josh, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for that generous introduction, Peter. So let's talk about this for a second. So many people now are confronted with choice. And then, of course, at the same time, there are a lot of people out there who don't have a choice. But if you do have the choice, it's about seizing those moments and basically reinventing yourself and then going to a chapter that might surprise you, might surprise your family, might surprise your friends. Either way, it embraces the passions that you have. And in reading this book, you know, it's about travel when you think about it, because so many people here in this book involve travel with it. You know, you talk about a woman who decided, okay, I've done this in my life, and at the age of 55, I'm going to become a flight attendant. Who knew, right? Yes, exactly right. I mean, that's, that's an interesting story. Yeah, well, I think, you know, she, she, like many of us, harbor sort of fantasies of a sort when we're doing one thing to make a living. And uh, sometimes they could be called childhood fantasies. Uh, sometimes they're adult fantasies. But there are many of us who think, gee, wouldn't it be fun if I? And so she loved, wanted to fly, did something entirely different in her regular career. And then at age 55, became a flight attendant. And saw the world. And that you would know better than me how conventional or unconventional that is. But it struck me as somewhat unusual to begin seeing the world on an airplane as a flight attendant at 55. And yet she did and, it. Uh, and just she, a wonderful, yeah. a wonderful left turn. And she did it. By the way, there's, a, there's another woman. Um, by the way, another one that just came to mind, which is a woman who uh, she was in actually in a fire when she was a kid. And um, and so it, it sort of left an impression on her because it was a big event. And she went through a career working in computer-related activities. And then at a similar age, when she was finishing up her sort of conventional work, she became a firefighter, which is... I must say, I find uh, awesome, remarkable, and a little inspiring. Well, as a firefighter myself, I'm inspired just to hear that story. Bottom line is, let's change gears here and talk about someone that most of us know or know of, uh, and that's Alan Alda. Of course, he came to mind on, on the American television sets at a time when more people watched the finale of MASH than I think any other show, uh, even back then. What's his third act? You know, actually, Alan Alda is really remarkable and, and bears a moment. Um, uh, we all know Alan Alda as, as an actor uh, from MASH, those of us who are familiar with his work, and, and a star actor. And he then um, had a tremendous interest in science and in the power and importance of science. And he did a science show on public television for years after that, essentially just educating people about science. And he was a little everyman and he was familiar. So he was able to, he was accessible and he was appealing, of course, because he was Alan Alda. And then after that, as if that wasn't enough, he specifically got the idea that, that doctors could do a better job with patients if they had, I'm going to use my words, better bedside manner. And he set up the old Alda School of Communications at Stony Brook University, and he trained several thousand physicians in communication skills. 
and I should have mentioned one thing early on. He, he had done improvisation work before we knew him in Nash. So he was really schooled in um, uh, so, sort of spontaneity and the use of spontaneity and improv and acting. So the, the Alta School of Communications trained no fewer than 5,000 physicians in how to relate better to patients. And all of us have been patients, and all of us, I think at one time or another, have felt that the doctor is not quite right there with us. And uh, he was out to change that, and he really changed it. And that is a phenomenal third act. And by the way, he, has, he continues today doing a podcast on all sorts of interesting subjects uh, now in his, I think, 80s, and uh, it's really onto his fourth act. Now, the other one that's, a, that's certainly a travel story in the most basic way is Ernie Andrus, the oldest man to run coast to coast. This guy was born in 1924. Right. Right. Almost impossible to imagine that someone uh, that old could run coast to coast, coast to coast. And in 2017, he pledged to be the oldest man to do it. Um, uh, from the California shore to Georgia. And it was initially to raise funds for a memorial built around the last surviving uh, World War II landing craft. Um, they were sometimes called, you'll know more about this than me, uh, Cigar Box Navy. Um, and he was, but he also just wanted to see the world. Uh, as he said it, uh, I think his line was the sheer love of watching different scenery go by because he was a jogger and he said, and I happen to have a quote in front of me, um, uh, I got bored running in the same neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> so um, so he decided to run across the U.S., which it seems almost impossible, but he did it. And then, of course, let's go to the world of broadcasting. A guy who's on radio and television who wakes up one morning and goes, I want to be a ranger. And next thing you know, oh. John Kerr becomes a ranger at the age of 65. You know, I just, I love this story, Peter. Um, you know, he was, he worked in public radio for four decades, I think at a public radio station in Boston, if I'm not mistaken. And he then, and he liked the outdoors and he had an adult child who was doing something in, in outdoor living. And he began, I think as an intern, um, doing something in an outdoor world. And then he, his internship led to becoming a full-on park ranger. Uh, and uh, at one point in conversation with him, he satirically said, uh, I did it for the hat. Uh, <laughs> but he really found, I think, he found incredible joy in, in being in the outdoors at age 65. Anyway, that, it sort of blows my mind. And, and, and you know, there are, I guess, there's something like 30 million people between the ages of 40 and 70 and of course, some are limited financially and otherwise, or in their capacity to do things, but many are not. They have enough means and or flexibility or physical capability to do something that is very different. They don't need to continue necessarily to bring in the income exactly as they brought it in before, not that there's not income in being a park ranger. Sure. And so they have the privilege and the opportunity to take a hard left or right turn. I don't mean that politically, just I mean as an exploration um, and your show explores things so wonderfully, and these are other ways of seeing the world. You know, one of the chapters in your book is devoted to someone who I've had the pleasure not only to meet, but he's been a guest on this show. He just celebrated his 100th birthday, and that's a name that many people may not remember what he did, but they'll certainly remember that he was, I mean, the shows that he did, and that's Norman Lear. You know, Norman Lear, uh, for anyone not familiar with him, uh, is, is I think it's fair to say, the mo perhaps the most important television producer maybe ever, because in the 70s, he had a series of shows that really utilized television. Um, uh, All in the Family was the beginning, but it really utilized television and it made great and funny TV. He did. But the TV also was important socially. And it, it, he, he took up race and he took up political differences. And then he had a series of several other hit shows. At one point, he had three hit shows uh, on network television. But that's sort of 
Act One of Norman, and I do have an update. I was in Los Angeles, and I mentioned Norman Lear, who went on after being that great producer to do extraordinary work in social activism, founded something called People for the American Way, and has spent decades doing, I think, really important work in social justice. But the anecdote is, I was in a room with an agent, a Hollywood agent, and I mentioned Norman Lear, and he's 100. And they said, oh yeah, he was in last week pitching a show. And (laughs) I don't know if there's a a hundred-year-old person in a Hollywood talent agency pitching a show. So he's not only improving the world, he not only has a legacy, he's still at it. Amazing. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, you and I grew up together from the age of five on an island called Fire Island in New York. And we've been in touch yes. ever since. And, and in fact, at one point, I believe you were a lifeguard. Am I right? Yes, I was. Well, one of the chapters in this book is dedicated to a lifeguard named Roy Lester. What's his act three? Well, Roy Lester is a phenomenal story. I hope I get his story straight because it's got chapters. So Roy Lester, bankruptcy attorney, becomes a lifeguard at Jones Beach. I hope I have it straight. And then he's required under rules and regs, I hope I have this right, to take a test to continue to be a lifeguard. And he's a phenomenal swimmer, probably the best swimmer there is among the lifeguards. He's in insane shape in his 60s. But they require him to take a lifeguard test in a Speedo, a Speedo. (laughs) And he objects and sues (laughs) and sues, says, I don't need to take the test in a Speedo. I can take it in a regular bathing suit. Apparently, the, the litigation goes on for some number of years and he prevails. And he takes the test in a regular bathing suit. And so he won the lawsuit and he's a lifeguard. He continues to be a lifeguard and a bankruptcy attorney. <laughs> Talk about a double double identity. And then, of course, one of the more celebrated third acts, someone we all know, but an interesting story nonetheless. And you profiled him in your chapter on Robert Redford. Oh, yeah. I mean, for those of us who are uh, uh, not Young, young, you know, it, it might be fair to say that Robert Redford is among the quote last movie stars. He made five movies with Jane Fonda. He made Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And the reason he's in the book is not just because he's a movie star. It's an interesting life story, and I think an extraordinary one. He he began as a hard scrabble life and began as a painter, and then as an off off-Broadway actor in New York, and he was painting overseas and then became an actor. And then his first directing assignment, first one of any significance, was a movie called Ordinary People, which for which he won the Academy Award for Best Director, which is an amazing movie and quite a feat. And then, if that isn't all enough to do in one lifetime, he became he founded the Sundance Film Festival, and I would say probably doing more for giving birth and attention to independent film, meaning, meaning made by artists outside of the studio system than any other person on the planet, certainly in the U.S., and that is an enormous contribution, I think, to the fabric of the art of, of an indie film. And if that wasn't enough, really has been an environmental activist. And Redford doesn't do one thing and then leave the other and then leave it and do the next. He seems to continue to do them all. So he continues to act. He continues to direct. He continues to develop. He continues social activism. I think he may be doing some painting, back to painting. And um, and the Sundance Film Festival, and importantly, the Sundance Lab, which is why he founded the festival, so he could really give instruction and development yeah. to new films. They all continue. Well, I can't let you go, Josh, without asking you the obvious question. After 26 years helming AMC, what's your third act? Right. Well, 26 years as CEO, 36 years at the company, so uh, lots of fun. And um, I'm trying to model my uh, life a bit on the people profiled in the book. And I've been experimenting with everything from I have an arrangement to make independent films, which I adore. And so I have a deal to make six independent films, but I've been trying to get out of my comfort zone. So Peter, I did try driving an ambulance and I was okay at the driving, but uh, I had to step down because I didn't think I could operate all the machinery adequately. But at least you you tried. I tried. 
And I'm now uh, spending time with people who've been recently incarcerated and doing career training through something called the Fortune Society, which is a wonderful organization in New York. And I have set up, and I have the happily the ability to do it, um, with the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, what I'll call with hyperbole, the Academy Awards for Autistic Media Makers called Marvels of Media. And I'm devoting attention to that. We had our first celebration last year and a great exhibition, and um, it went really well. And uh, we're doing it again this year, so hopefully it continues. So, so obviously, you have, uh, no, I won't you have, you have you a lot with of more detail. So obviously, you have a lot of free time on your hands. <laughs> the name of the book, right? And by the way, and, and I'm and I'm traveling where you tell me to go. So uh, I get my counsel from you, as you know. <laughs> uh, and when you tell me to go, I go. So I have that privilege, and and I'm and I'm lucky to know you. Well, thank you, Josh, and right back at you. My thanks to Josh, to Michelle Moreau, and to Alexander Lebrano, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know exactly what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.